We're in Jonah tonight. Uh, you may know this, but one of the more popular funeral songs these days is My Way by Frank Sinatra. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Frank Sinatra's songs. I mean, I've Got You Under My Skin. That may be the most catchy song that's ever been written, and there's a lot more where that came from. But I don't like My Way, and I especially don't like it in a funeral. I did a funeral once where it was in there, and I just kind of grudgingly let it happen. You know, I said, well, it's, it's your funeral, literally. Um, but... <laughs> I didn't say that, but that was my attitude. I don't like it because it's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says, I tried it my way, it didn't work. I need to cast all my life upon Jesus, throne of the cross, let him take over, and that's our salvation. Whereas my way says, I do it my way. And I bring all that up because that's a good, if Jonah had a song, at least at the time this book was, these events were happening, it would be my way. He wanted things his way. Remember, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you can't get into heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You literally have to die and become a new person in order to be saved, in order to be embraced into the family of God. You can't do it your way. C.S. Lewis said there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, then have it your way. And that's, that's really the story of humanity. So Jonah, uh, it may not real fit real neatly into our theme of uncharted territory. Most of these books are books where the average Christian has no idea what they're about, even though they're in the Bible. Whereas most Christians are familiar with the basic outline of Jonah's story, but I would argue that most of them, all they could really tell you about it is, well, Jonah got swallowed by a fish. And that's pretty much the end of the story in their minds. Whereas that's just the beginning of the story in the actual book. There's so much more to it. So who was Jonah? He was a prophet of God. He, he was from uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, a little town called Gath Hefer, uh, which is near Nazareth. Um, he's mentioned in one of the book of the Bible, and it's the book of Second Kings. Uh, earlier when we were talking about Amos and Hosea, they both preached during the time uh, in Israel of a king named Jeroboam II. You may remember, if you, if you really paid attention or you're really sharp, Jeroboam II was one of those rare kings who was successful even though he didn't serve the Lord. And the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, expanded greatly. Uh, and 2 Kings 14.25 says that Jonah was there basically giving him permission, cheering him on, saying, yeah, you expand the kingdom, you fight these battles, you do great things for your country. So what is the book of Jonah actually about? It's, it's about God telling his people that they've missed their mark, that they've missed their mission. Remember, in Genesis 12.3, God created the Jewish people through one man named Abraham. And he told him, you're going to be a great nation, and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, the Jews, as the time went on, they, for, they remembered one part of that. We're a great nation. We're the chosen people of God. Those who bless us will be blessed. Those who curse us will be cursed. They remembered that. They forgot that whole part about we're supposed to bless all nations. We're supposed to be God's priests. Remember? Remember what a priest does? A priest represents God before the people and the people before God. He brings God and people together. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests that stood among the nations and said, come see our God. 
and we'll tell you how to be right with him. But they didn't do that. Over time, they became, uh, they, they began to see the Gentiles as their enemies instead of the people they were supposed to reach. And it's understandable considering, uh, you know, basically from the very beginning, and especially from the time of the Exodus on, they were hounded, they were harassed, they were attacked, they were oppressed by non-Jewish nations. Those even just like today, tiny little nation in the middle of all these big, bad countries all around them. And so I understand, I, I guarantee you, this is not an anti-Jewish thing. If, if it would have been Irish or Italians or Argentinians or whoever you want to name, and you put them in that same position, they probably would have reacted the same. Even Germans, and I come from German stock, so I, 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 will, I will admit that. But God wanted to remind the people, you've missed your purpose. You're not behaving like priests. So he chooses this very unlikely prophet, the last prophet we would have chosen, to preach to a very unlikely group of people, the last group of people we'd have chosen. If you're going to plant a church in 700 BC, you wouldn't choose Nineveh. Well, that's where God sent Jonah to preach. Now, before we get into it, I want to just point out a few interesting things that just came to me when I was preparing for this. There's some interesting comparisons when you think about it. Compare Jonah to Amos. If you remember, Amos, just like Jonah, was a prophet from the south who, was, who, who ended up preaching in the north, in Israel. Uh, but the difference is, Amos, when he came to Jeroboam's kingdom, he criticized Jeroboam. He criticized Israel in spite of all their wealth and success, whereas Jonah was sort of cheering them on. He was sort of uh, enabling, not enabling, but... Uh, endorsing the, the success of Jerusalem, of, of not Jerusalem, but Israel. I just, they were lived at the same time. I wonder if they ever met. Who knows? Only God. Think about the comparison between Jonah and the Apostle Paul. Both of them were patriotic, proud Jewish men who, preached, who, who were called by God to preach to the Gentiles. And both of them, before God commanded them to preach to the Gentiles, hated Gentiles. Both of them would would have been the last guy you would have chosen for that responsibility. The difference is, Paul, when he met God face to face in the form of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, it changed him forever. He didn't didn't have that hatred for the Gentiles anymore. It transformed him. Whereas Jonah, he didn't change at all, at least not at first. It took a lot more than just an initial encounter with God to change Jonah. And, And then there's a third comparison, and this comes from the scriptures themselves. Jesus in Matthew 12, 38 through 41 compares himself to Jonah. You may remember the story. The Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and they say, listen, uh, you, say you're, you say you're this great person. People think you're the Messiah. Why don't you, why don't you give us a sign? Which is a, a ludicrous thing to ask for since Jesus is doing miracles left and right. Do, do us a sign. Show us a trick. Show us that you're really God's son. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish. I'll be three days in the belly of the earth. And that's the sign of God. And and you know what? The people of Nineveh repented when they saw what Jonah did. And somebody greater than Jonah is here today. And you won't repent. He said, at the day of judgment, the Ninevites will, will be there accusing you because you didn't listen. Someone greater than Jonah is here and you didn't listen. So let's start with Jonah chapter one, verses one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But 
Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So Tarshish, hard name to say, was, we think, present day Spain. Uh, there's every indication if it wasn't Spain, it was someplace far away, someplace that in the minds of an Israelite like Jonah was the end of the earth. You know, there isn't anything beyond that. That's the end. You go past that, you fall off, right? So what is Jonah doing? Jonah's a prophet of God. He doesn't literally think he can outrun the Lord. He's smarter than that. I think what Jonah's doing is he, this is how much he hates the command of God. Is he saying to God, not only am I not going to go to Nineveh, I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as possible to get. And his hope, I think, is that God's going to say, wow, if he's going to be that stubborn, I'll just choose somebody else. But God has news for Jonah. God's love and his righteousness can be every bit as stubborn as our sin. Why was Jonah so angry about this command? See, this is the surprising thing. There's a, there's a lot of surprises in these first three verses. One is that God chooses Jonah for, for reasons we've already talked about. But another is that God chooses to send him to Nineveh. Now, where is Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Assyria at that time was the big empire to the north of Israel that was gobbling up other countries. Now, all through the ancient world, and even in modern times, there have been countries like this. You know, we think in our times of the Soviet Union and before that Nazi Germany, countries that just that can't stop consuming other countries, that just can't stop conquering other people. In the ancient world, it was Babylon, it was Persia, it was, uh, it was Macedonia under Alexander the Great, it was the Roman Empire. But the thing that all those, all those empires had in common was at least they produced something, right? Babylonia, uh, or I'm sorry, Babylon, Macedonia, uh, Persia, Rome. You can all go, you can go back in history and look, okay, well, they produced philosophy or, or great literature, or they taught us something new about how to run a government or, uh, or music or art. The Assyrians didn't produce anything. The Assyrians' empire was based totally on conquest, totally on bloodshed. Archaeologists have found uh, their, you know, the relics of the Assyrians, and all, all you see is, is images of death, you know, piles of skulls, prisoners being led away with hooks through their noses. It, it was a, a country that just liked to kill. And so if you were an Israelite, it's understandable why you would hate the Assyrians. And so when God says, go and Preach to, preach to Nineveh, for their evil has come out against, come up before me. Jonah knows, no, I don't want to do that. Because if I do that and they repent, which there's no guarantee they'll repent. They're evil people. Chances are they won't repent. But there's a chance that they'll hear about the judgment of the Lord and they'll repent. And if they do, I know you, God. I know that you'll forgive them. And I don't want you to give them a chance. I want you to just drop fire and brimstone on them with no warning whatsoever. And so Jonah runs and runs as far as he can. But God is not going to be outsmarted. 
a storm arises, a storm so severe that the crusty men of the sea who are in charge of this boat uh, begin to pray and, and ask everyone on board to pray. And they say to everybody, okay, whatever your gods are, pray. Uh, Jonah is asleep. Does that remind you of anybody? Again, another parallel to Jesus. When Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, disciples have a similar conversation. Lord, don't you care we're going to drown? You're sleeping here in the boat. These sailors come up to Jonah and say, wake up. Why don't you pray to your God? And Jonah says, well, you know, the truth is I know why this is happening. I'm, I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm a Hebrew, the one true God. And the reason this is happening is because I'm, I'm running away from it. And it's interesting, and this shows the, the stubbornness of Jonah. Jonah knows that the storm is because of him. He knows that not only is he going to die, all these other men are going to die, and it's his fault. Yet instead of repenting, which is what any one of us, I hope, would do in that situation, Jonah says, just throw me overboard. I mean, once I'm dead, God will stop. Now, that's, that's some serious stubbornness, but that's not even the, the bedrock of his stubbornness. It gets worse. So I'd rather drown than obey God, and yet look what happens next. They throw him in, by the way. Interesting thought, fact about this story is, you know, two interesting things. Number one, Jonah's running away because he doesn't want to preach to Gentiles. He ends up telling Gentiles about God. You know, God, God gets his way in the end. You can't outwit him. Secondly, this prophet of God ends up acting in a much less righteous way than these pagan sailors. He doesn't care that they're all going to die, whereas those sailors actually, it takes them a long time to throw Jonah overboard. You know, they don't just immediately toss him over the side. They work and, and bail and, and row and they're hoping. And finally, when they, when they throw him overboard, they say, okay, uh, God, forgive us. We didn't want to do this, but the, you know, you've left us with no choice. And they throw him overboard. Immediately, the storm stops and they make vows to the Lord. They get saved. It's an amazing story. Jonah ends up being used by God in a way he didn't want to. So here's what happens next. Verse 17. I love this line. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the Lord appointed a fish. Don't you love that? And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Wait a second. He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and then he prayed? See, this is how stubborn this man is. Three days of being slowly digested, that's how long it took him to finally say, okay, God, you win, which is pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, and we can read this as a story of incredible stubbornness, and it's pretty funny to read it that way, but it's all, you can also read it as a corrective. It's, it's an acknowledgement of something, and I, I hope you all understand the way I'm about to say this. When we talk about idolatry, in the Old Testament, idolatry usually refers to worshiping false gods, to worshiping idols, to worshiping, uh, you know, carved objects or acknowledged gods like Dagon or Baal or Asherah. You get to the New Testament, though, and it's pretty clear that God considers other things idolatry, too. It doesn't just have to be a separate religion or bowing down before an image. It can be greed. It can be, uh, it can be love of things of this world. So what we're left with is the idea that anything that you love more than you love God, 
anything that provides for you what only God should provide, like your identity, your purpose, your security, uh, anything that motivates you more than God motivates you, anything you're willing to obey more than you obey God, that's really your idol. And for Jonah, his idol was patriotism. Now, patriotism is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. I, I think uh, every Christian ought to love his or her country, ought to be the best American they can be, or Nigerian or Argentinian or whatever you happen to be. Uh, but if your patriotism gets in the way of obeying God, then it's idolatry. And that's what happens to Jonah here. Jonah doesn't want to do the will of God because he thinks it's not in the best national interest of his country. If God destroys Assyria, then he won't have to worry about Israel being destroyed by Assyria. But if God forgives Assyria, then that threat's still out there. And we know that Jonah is a nationalist. We know he's a patriot because he was there cheering on Jeroboam when that country was expanding. So think about that. It's a perfect example of a good thing becoming an ultimate thing and therefore becoming an idol and hurting our ability to serve the Lord. Now, Jonah starts to pray from the belly of the fish, and it's quite a prayer. So let's read it, verses 2 through 10. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were trapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from my, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, notice what he doesn't say in that prayer. He doesn't say what you expect him to say, which is, God, get me out of here. In fact, notice the prayer is in the past tense. It's like, I know God's going to get me out of this because that's the kind of God he is. I re I'm repenting. He's going to forgive me. Everything's going to be okay. He, he's, it's a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer that says twice, I look toward your temple. It's probably been years since Jonah's been to the temple of the Lord, since he's been in the north in Israel instead of down south in where Jerusalem is. It's a confidence in God's grace, and it's, I can't wait to get back and stand in your presence again. And the, the way it ends, the way the prayer ends, is maybe the most significant statement in the whole book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through our God. One God, one salvation. And then verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Don't you love how graphic the Bible is? It didn't just spit. You know, when I was a little kid, my mom used to tell me this story, and she always said that the the, the, the fish spit Jonah up. And I always thought it was just like me spitting out a watermelon seed. And then I grew up and read the Bible for myself and I saw that word vomited and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's a whole different image, you know? Uh, that changes the story substantially. So we don't know how much time passes. Maybe it's immediate. Maybe, maybe, uh, this is what I always thought, but what I can't prove. Maybe the fish 
spit up Jonah on the coast of Assyria. And it was sort of like God's transportation to get him there. We don't know. Either way, at some point, God said to Jonah, okay, here's your second chance. Go to Nineveh and cry out against it. That's the message that I tell you. So this time Jonah goes. This time Jonah obeys. Now let's listen to this message, okay? And I got to tell you, I grew up in such a way that I was a young adult in the late 80s and early 90s. And that was the era of, remember, seeker-sensitive church? You remember that, that whole trend uh, where churches said, okay, if we're going to reach non-Christians, we have to stop looking like a church. We have to stop using churchy words. We have to take all the, all the churchy-looking decorations down. You had churches that looked more like shopping malls than, than sanctuaries, you know, so... And it worked to some extent. You know, some of you came from some of those churches. This was a very big baby boomer phenomenon. So a lot of baby boomers came into church at that time, got saved because it was different than the stodgy method of their upbringing. I mention all that to say this. There's nothing seeker sensitive about what Jonah does. Jonah goes to Nineveh and his message is not a feel good message. It says, verse four, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. No hope. No, okay, here's what you should do. No ten steps to getting right with God. You got forty days, and then you're all going to die. That's basically the message. The opposite of of seeker-sensitive. I mean, any preacher I know and have ever known would have said, oh, this is a terrible idea. This is not the way you speak to lost people. Look what happens, though, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, why would this happen? First of all, what's going on here? Fasting, we, we understand fasting. The Assyrians, we find out later, uh, when we read further, they didn't just fast from food. They fasted from water. That's an absolute fast. That's something that not even the Bible commands. Sackcloth was a garment, a rough, itchy garment that was a ritual way of expressing mourning or grief. Uh, so why would this happen? You know, this, this is every bit as surprising as if today a Christian evangelist just showed up in Pyongyang and started preaching to the North Koreans, and the next day Kim Jong-un, or whatever his name is, uh, gets on TV and says, I repent, and I command all North Koreans to repent of uh, the, the way we've behaved for the last 60 years. I mean, would we be surprised at that? Absolutely. And it's no less surprising this happened to Assyria. Now, why did it happen? Some people have pointed out, historians have said that right before this, Assyria, although still very powerful, had experienced for the first time a couple of military defeats. They'd also, there had also been a, a plague and a famine and, a, and a, new, a solar eclipse. So they were on edge. They were starting to think, oh, what's going on in the world? And all of a sudden, this wild prophet shows up out of nowhere Maybe skin a little bleached, right, from all that digestive juice. Maybe, maybe smelling a little bit like whale barf. I don't know. It's, it's just this weird circumstance. This guy just shows up and starts preaching doom. 
And so a message that ordinarily would, wouldn't hit at all finds a willing audience. And, and you have to understand, and I think some of you, maybe all of you know this, that's the way God works. God doesn't send us to people that he hasn't prepared. And you've heard those stories, and maybe some of you have even experienced those instances where you share the gospel with someone and they give their heart to Christ on the first time they ever meet you, right? We all know those stories, and maybe you've experienced that. But that's just you harvesting seed that somebody else planted and somebody else watered. You know that, right? That person didn't go from being 100% atheist to accepting Christ in that very moment. God's been working on that person and brought you in at the right moment. And that's what happens to Jonah. Jonah comes at a crucial time when God's been working on the hearts of the Ninevites and he speaks to them the message and they respond. So, uh, and by the way, not only do they respond, I love this, the king of Nineveh has taken no chances at all. He, he issues a decree and he says, okay, not just me and my court. Everybody's got to wear sackcloth. Everybody's got to fast. Everybody's got to abstain from water and food uh, because we don't want to die. So it's a law in Assyria. Not just the people, by the way, but the animals too. Now, don't you think there were some confused donkeys and cattle and dogs? Why are you putting this stuff on? Why aren't you feeding me? He just, he, I'm not taking any chances. Now, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. See, this is proof that sometimes the prophecies of God are conditional. Sometimes God says, here's what I'm going to do, and then he waits to see how we'll respond. And this is not the only example. I'll give you another example. There's a story in, in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, where Hezekiah, one of the godliest kings of Judah, he gets a visit from Isaiah who says, hey, put your house in order, you're going to die. And what does Hezekiah do? He prays to the Lord. He repents, he prays, he says, Lord, please, please spare me. God speaks to Isaiah and says, go back and tell him, I'll give you 15 more years. And, I, and Hezekiah recovers. Now, does that mean that we changed God's mind, that God says, ah, well, on second thought? No, because God can't change his mind because that would imply that God was wrong the first time. What that means is that God gives us a chance. God says, here's what's going to happen. And we say, okay, is there anything I can do? Can I repent? Can I get right with you? And God says, okay, I was hoping you'd do that. And here's, here's the result. And that's what happens here. Now, the real surprising part, and by the way, the repentance of the Ninevites is a way bigger miracle than a whale swallowing a man and then spitting him up three days later. Way bigger miracle. But the real surprise of the story is what happens next. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you rem Does any of that sound familiar? He's using God's own words against him. 
God, you remember in, in Genesis, in Exodus 34, when Moses goes up onto the side of the mountain and God hides him in the cleft of the rock and, and speaks his name. He says, I am the Lord. I am slow to anger. I am uh, forgiving uh, uh, all the sins. I relent for, I, I'm gracious and merciful. And now Jonah takes those words, those, those precious words, the name of God and says, yeah, I knew you were like that. That's why I didn't want to preach this message. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's pretty dramatic. And, and as far as I know, Jonah is the only preacher in history who's mad that his preaching worked. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? Again, back to that example of a, of a Christian evangelist converting all of North Korea. Man, that, that evangelist would tell that story every time he preached from then on. And I would too. Jonah's angry. Angry enough he wants to die. He'd rather die than live. And then it gets worse. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in, a, in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. So essentially, Jonah's going to camp out and say, okay, there's still a chance that the Ninevites will go back to their old ways and I'll still get to watch them burn. So that's why he's camping out. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, which tells you how long he was sitting there. It doesn't say that this is some supersonic plant. This, it takes a while for a plant to grow up out of the ground and be large enough that it shades somebody's head. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. By the way, same term. He appointed a big fish. Now he appoints a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you, will, do you, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, this part of the story seems comical to us, but it's deadly serious to God. When God says, I pity Nineveh, we hear pity and we think of, oh, well, isn't that too bad? You poor little deer. But it's a, a, the word for compassion. And the word for compassion in the Bible refers to, I'm attached to that person. What happens to them in some sense happens to me. When they hurt, I hurt. When they cry, I cry. When they die, a little bit of me dies with them. Which, by the way, is the way God wants us to feel about the people in our lives. God says, I'm attached to the Ninevites. I, I, in, I, I pity them. I have compassion for them. They're a part of me. And then he calls them people who don't even know their right hand from their left. He makes them sound like little children, which sort of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. And Jonah, meanwhile, is over here upset about a plant. 
and, and mad because he's not going to get to watch 120,000 people die painfully, slowly. And, and it makes you wonder, why did God stick with Jonah? Why didn't God say, okay, I've had enough of you? Because the whole story is not just about changing Nineveh. The story is about changing Jonah. And through Jonah, changing us. So there's a reason why this book is in the Bible. God wants us to learn from this. God knows there's a, there's a little Jonah in all of us. Um, the, the funny thing about the story, the strange thing about the story, is it ends with Jonah still not on board. But I believe Jonah eventually saw things God's way. And the reason I believe that is, how else would we know this story? I believe eventually Jonah repented before God and said, okay, God, you were right, I was wrong, and then started telling his story to others and saying, okay, let me tell you what the Lord said to me and what he put me through. Learn from my mistakes. Let's be like God and not like me. So that's good news. Good news is God's love is stubborn. More stubborn than our sin. He will chase us and chase us and chase us to the very gates of hell. And if we want to go to hell, we got to go over his dead body. God's love is stubborn. The bad news is God's righteousness is stubborn too. And that means, that means if you're a child of God, you don't get to say, well, everybody else is hateful. I'm going to be hateful too. Those people are evil. Well, I'm going to treat them the way they treat me. God's not on your side when you act like that. He, he expects you to obey his command, to love your enemies, to pray for those who hate us. Um, if there's sin in your life you refuse to deal with, God's not going to let you off the hook. The most miserable people I've ever known are Christians who are out of the will of God because God refuses to let us be happy in our sin. He loves us too much for that. His righteousness is too stubborn. Jonah finds out you can't out-stubborn God. And that's, that's annoying, but it's also beautiful. Now, uh, earlier this year, I read a book called The Prodigal Prophet by one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, and it's about the book of Jonah. You may think, what a weird name for the book. His point is, the story of Jonah sort of parallels the prodigal son story. And we all know the prodigal son story from Luke 15. I won't recap it, but in the first part of the book, the book of Jonah, Jonah's like the younger brother who runs away from his father, who says, I don't want you, I don't want your, your plans, I don't want anything, I just want to get away. But in the second half of the book, he becomes like the older brother, which when you read Luke 15, read it from start to finish, not just the parable, but the whole chapter, you find out the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son is really the main character. That's who God, Jesus was telling the story about. Because he was telling the story to the Pharisees. You start Luke 15, and it says the scribes and Pharisees were mad at Jesus because he hung out with sinners. So he says, well, you know, the reason I hang out with sinners is my father's like a shepherd who loses a sheep. And even though he's got 99 safe in the, in the, in the fields, he goes out where it's dangerous to rescue that one lost sheep. And my father's like a woman who's got 10 coins. And he, when she loses one, she doesn't say, well, I've still got nine. No, she turns the house upside down to find that one coin. That's what my God is like. And then he tells the story of the prodigal son. And the whole point of the story is, at the end of the story, when the prodigal, when this fool 
comes home, he's welcomed back into the family. He's not, he's not punished. He's not reprimanded. He's not made to pay for his sins. He's just brought back and the father throws his big party and the older brother refuses to come in the house. He's mad. Why are you mad? Why are you mad? Well, because I've been obedient this whole time and you've never even given me a young goat. You killed a fatted calf for this one who, who ran around with prostitutes. First of all, never says that he runs around with prostitutes. That's something that the older brother, I'm sure, imagined in his mind, um, projected onto his younger brother. Second of all, he's not happy. He's, not, he's dishonoring his father, first of all, by making his father leave the party and come out to him. Second of all, he's breaking his father's heart. Any of us who are parents know the, the, one of the most painful things we can experience is division between our children. Right, We would do anything to bring our children back together. And one of the greatest things to see is when our children love each other and are getting along. So he's breaking his father's heart. And, and Jesus is saying, that's you, Pharisees and scribes. Here, God is doing this amazing thing. This God you claim to love, right? And you're all about obedience. And I've never broken your commands. And yet here, God's doing this amazing thing. He's coming. He sent me into the world to rescue humanity and you're mad about it. Why? Because a, a few prostitutes and tax collectors are getting into the kingdom and you don't like the fact that there's people in your country club that you don't think qualify. And that's not right. And Jonah's the same way. God comes to him and says, I've got a great idea. I'm going to transform this group of people who are doing all this evil stuff. And Jonah's like, no, I want you to kill them. I don't want you to transform them. I want you to destroy them. They don't belong with us. Jonah is the older brother. And both stories end on a cliffhanger. You know, at the end of the prodigal son story, we don't know what the older brother chooses to do. That's Jesus is Jesus told that it, best story ever told, I submit. Jesus told the story that way as a way of saying, okay, so scribes and Pharisees, you're that older brother. What do you do? Do you come into the party or do you stay outside? Jonah ends on a cliffhanger, I think, for the same reason. Because we're Jonah. And what are we going to do? Are we going to uh, embrace the gospel? Are we going to live out the gospel? Or are we going to just be so full of our own pride? Or are we going to work with God, alongside God, in bringing those prodigals home? Or are we going to just enjoy how much, how good it feels to judge them and to... And to and to hate them and to uh, feel good about their coming destruction. The, the choice is really ours. But just understand that we break the heart of God when we don't seek the salvation of the lost, no matter who they are. Who is your Nineveh? That's the question you need to ask. Who is that person or that group of people who you say, okay, God, don't send me to them. Don't, don't ask me to love them. That's the question we all need to ask. And again, good news, God's love is stubborn. Bad news, His righteousness is too. So let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Uh, such a, such a well-told story in your word, and yet such a convicting story as well. I pray, Lord, that we would search our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and see who we've been looking at through eyes of 
judgment, eyes of superiority and arrogance instead of eyes of grace. And Lord, help us to love you enough to love others. Lord, make us a church that wins the lost. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.